Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Thursday, September the 14th, 2017. It actually is Thursday today, uh, unlike yesterday where I spent two hours getting ready for this show and, well, ended up having to do impromptu off the cuff with... Uh, Bones and Amy, because it was Wednesday. So this is a listener call show. I'm pretty jagged up about today's show. I really am. I, I'm, I'm excited. There's a lot of good stuff going on today. Uh, here's the questions we'll be handling today. Thoughts on a backup cell phone plan, and I'm going to actually crowdsource some ideas on that. Uh, uh, some observations on what we're calling the militar militarization of Leos, and I'm going to talk about two of the problems I see with it. Uh, one that may not really be the one that anybody's talking about. And it might be in some ways at some times the bigger of the two issues. Dealing with a dog that's having issues with its house training, a dog that basically is house trained but then starts dropping loads in certain parts of the house. I've dealt with that, and uh, I'll tell you how I have. Uh, how to manage a life establishment fund for your kids, some thoughts on that, versus a college savings account. Um, should we select a TSP official CB channel? I don't know if we should, but I'll, uh, I'll tell you how you guys can participate in that if you're CB users. Uh, setting up a water catchment for AC water drip. So you got that condensation dripping off the AC, you might as well do something with it. Uh, the value of storm preps during a hurricane, we have a call on that. Uh, thoughts on keeping cash on hand safely for a disaster in an amount that makes sense to do so. And then a question that, I, I'm, I'm, I can't tell you how much I love this question. It's on choosing a quality deer rifle set up for, for under a thousand bucks for a first time hunter that wants a rifle that's going to last them a very long time. And they want to do it kind of all in one to two thousand dollars, um, with the scope and, and what have you. And, uh, I kept it under a grand and I did even more than the person asked for with a fantastic rifle. And, uh, I've got a whole, package set up for that, and uh, we'll get to all that more in just a bit. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one today, BulkAmmo.com. Hey, I just talked about that deer rifle, right? Okay, you're going to have guns, and you're going to use them for their intended purposes. You need these things called, uh, this stuff called ammunition to put inside of it. If you do not have that, a gun is basically an overpriced club or maybe a barter item or something you can pawn for some money, but it is not a gun. Without the bullets, it just doesn't do the things that guns are supposed to do. The other thing is, not only do you need ammo for that gun, you need to run that gun, train with that gun, so that you can use it effectively. Uh, because when it comes time to put meat on the table or save someone, or save yourself, you need to be very familiar with that weapon. And the way to do that is to run quite a bit of ammo through it. And one way you can do that affordably is to go to bulkammo.com, And pick your ammo up there. You'll be surprised at the selection, the pricing, the service, and the speed of shipping. Check them out today at BulkAmmo.com. Next up today, Self-Reliance Magazine. Self-Reliance Magazine is an amazing publication. It is, you know, the new century's publication from the people that brought you Backwoods Home. The end of this year, we will get the final episode of Backwoods Home. It's going to be kind of a bittersweet thing for me. You see, I started reading Backwoods Home 
1993 when I got out of the Army. I came down to Texas after I took my walk on the Appalachian Trail, and uh, my car immediately broke down. And until I got my car fixed, I was walking you know, all around this place I lived, and there was a mall about a mile away. I was pretty broke, too. Walked down to the mall one day, started looking through the magazine rack, and I found a copy of Backwoods Home and some other stuff. Went and bought a cup, cup, big old cup of expensive coffee so I wasn't a bum. Sat down in the cafe there at a Barnes & Noble and paged through that magazine. And one of the first things I did when I found a new job and got myself on my feet in my new home was subscribe to Backwoods Home. I've been a subscriber ever since. But it was a publication from the 80s and the 90s world. The new modern world is where self-reliance comes in. They've adapted, they've made it even better, and you should subscribe to Self-Reliance. I know that as I say goodbye to Backwoods Home, I'll be very happy to become a lifelong subscriber to Self-Reliance magazine. Check them out and you'll see exactly why I feel that way. Next up today, let's take a look at the year that was from history. We are up to the year 57, and I have a segment today for you from the year 57 AD from Southpaw Bend. Nukuku, Nukuku, Nukoku. Nikoku, I'm going to say is how he said his name, Nikoku, receives a golden seal. The Chinese Han Emperor, Guanghua of Han, gave the seal to the envoy of the Nikoku Kingdom, which was located in Kaishua, the southernmost of Japanese four main islands. The seal was made of 95% pure gold and is a square seal with a coiled serpent for a handle. The text on it reads, King of the Japanese Country of Na." of Han, and likely the name signifies the Nikoku Kingdom as a vassal state of the Chinese Han Empire. This seal was rediscovered on April 12, 1784, by a farmer repairing a drainage ditch, and it was surrounded by stone, the lid of which was so heavy it required two people to lift it. The seal is believed to have been described in the Book of the Later Han, which is a chronicle of the Eastern Han Dynasty. The book states that the emperor conferred the seal to a diplomat who was on who was visiting from Japan. My take by Southpaw Ben. I have heard Japanese culture described as taking Chinese culture and refining it. It is interesting to see how related and similar Japan and China are throughout history, such as how Japanese is based on Chinese and how Buddhism was brought over from China and then adapted to better fit Japan. This gets even more interesting when we compare modern Japan and China and how they've become very different yet remain very similar at the same time. For example, both China and Japan have become major industrial powers and yet are seen as completely opposite sides of that spectrum as Japan has seen a source of high-quality goods, whether handmade or mass-produced, while China-produced items have become synonymous with junk. That's interesting because, you know what, I'm a little older than you, Southpaw Ben, and I remember when Japanese goods were considered junk and Japanese cars were considered junk. It wasn't that long ago. It was about evolving and developing the technology. China goods are getting better. Of course, I think the advantage that Ch Japan has over China, for now anyway, is capitalism versus socialism. Though, I'll tell you, in my opinion, China is moving more rapidly toward a system that is closer to capitalism. Uh, they're getting there quicker. I, I would say... They're, they are heading in that direction while we as a country are heading more towards socialism all the time. Now, they're still way more socialist than us, and we're still way more capitalist than them, but we're both headed in opposite directions. You wonder, are we going to meet in the middle or pass each other and end up in 1984 over here while they figure out that that was all a mistake? I'm not sure. My other thing with reading this, though, 
you're this uh, farmer in 1784. You're repairing a ditch. You find a big rock, basically, sarcophagus. You go get your buddy. You pop it off the lid. And you find in it a solid gold stamp from the year 57. This is my question. With all of the things we've done, how many more discoveries like that are left? Do we, I mean, do we really have much for the modern Indiana Jones to be looking for, I guess is what I'm saying. And my answer to that is I don't know. Part of me feels like most of the great discoveries like that have been made. And part of me feels like, you know, given that we can go out to the beach with a metal detector and find pocket change that's been there for 20 or 30 years or more, given that people still walk around certain parts of the country and find heirlooms from the Civil War with a metal detector, there's probably still some great things out there to be found. But, of course, the search is the real thing now, isn't it? Uh, with that, let me remind you guys, you can join the Member Support Brigade today and help support the show. Uh, and I want to tell you, if you're an MSB member, right now you can uh, register for the Survival Podcast Nine Mile Farm Workshop in November, November 8 through 12, with the workshop dates actually being 9 through 11. Set up on the property if you want to camp out on the 8th, and you got to get off the property by about 11 a.m. on the 12th so that Dorothy and I can go into recovery mode. Um, I say that with trepidation. I put the workshop up for sale today, and I started monitoring what came in. I decided I was going to sell 40 seats this, this time around. Because David and Nick, who handle all the parking for me, told me, yeah, we can fit more. Uh, and then I started looking at stuff coming in. Got a lot of people that are carpooling, taking a cab, couples coming together. So I added two seats. So we're selling the most I've ever done. I, I'm making available 42 seats. And, and you'd think that would take a long time to sell out. And so far it hasn't as of right now this second. But as of the time of this recording, we are T minus nine and counting. We're down to nine. So in about three hours, we sold 31 seats. So when you hear this, if you want to come and you haven't checked yet, check right away. And I think this is going to be one of the best workshops we've ever done. Look forward to seeing many of you here. All right, with that, let's get into the main topic of today's show. First question is on cell phones. We'll go ahead and hear that now, and I'll come back and tell you what my thoughts are on it. Hi, Jack. I have a call about a having a backup cell phone. Uh, I've heard you talk a lot recently about having your phone charged, and uh, Stephen Harris has a whole class about that. So what about the whole two is one, one is none? You know, your phone might break or get lost or, or have to be lent out. Do you have any ideas about a, a phone plan that is cheap enough to keep active all the time, even though you're not using it? I have Verizon, but maybe it's a good idea to have a phone that works on a different network. And uh, also, what do you think about the backup flip phone versus backup smartphone? The flip phone might uh, be better in the battery life segment, but uh, smartphone, you have the option of better data and uh, apps and whatnot. Uh, thanks for any comments. So after doing this show for over nine years and handling all different types of things with preparedness, the majority of questions I get, I either feel like, Yeah, I've considered that. It's not really that useful or interesting or probably doesn't apply to everybody or is very unique or I just that doesn't work for me and I, I don't have any need of that. Or, yeah, I considered that and here's what I'm doing and you're absolutely right and that's a great idea. 
Then there's the third classification. That's this one. The questions that make me go, why after nine years have you not actually come up with a solution to this? Because that's a brilliant idea. And that's how I feel about this question. And what I, I started doing yesterday when I was doing all the prep for this show is started researching, like, what plans would fit into this. And it's mind-boggling the number of plans that are available and trying to figure out what will work for people and what won't. And, you know, I thought overseas, a lot of times what people do is they have a single cell phone and multiple providers and plans through multiple SIM cards and they swap them out. But our market's a lot different than that. It's not so easy to do with a lot of the phones that we have here in the States. So this is what I want to do with this. I want to crowdsource this. Uh, you can either email me, jack at the survivalpodcast.com, and put TSPC cell in the subject line. That's C-E-L-L, not S-E-L-L. And uh, give me your thoughts on what plans would work well for this. Or even better, come to today's show and put it in the comments section so everybody can see it and talk about it. And then sometime... Next week, maybe, depending on whether I get enough feedback or not, um, I'll do some follow-up on it. That we may run into my vacation, though, because I'm only doing new shows Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday next week, and I'm gone Thursday and then through the next week. I have rewinds all set up for you. You should have a show every day. And if it, I don't get enough feedback by, let's say, Wednesday, I'll do follow-up on the Monday that I come back after my vacations because I think this is brilliant. And I think it makes a lot of sense. We say two is one and one is none about everything, And I guess one of the ways that we kind of lean on this as a crutch is that um, my, you know, if you're a couple, you generally both have a phone. So if something goes with wrong with one, the other one still works. But if it's a network issue, like I'm on AT&T, then you know, having a different provider, I think that makes a ton of sense. Um, and there's probably a lot of different ways you can do this. There may be ways that even a person that's like an iPhone user like me could have a backup you know, piece of hardware that I could use on that plan, but I don't know. AT&T is not very flexible. Um, but I do know a lot of like the pre-fade stuff and all. Even if you don't use it, it kind of eats away at your minutes. And then you, know, you mentioned uh, smartphone or like a cheap flip phone. My instinct would be if you had the money or you could find a good used one or something, I'd much rather have a smartphone. Um, not necessarily having two iPhones, but you know, a Galaxy or something like that as a backup, just because they do so much more. Basically, you have a pocket computer, and that can be very useful in situations where you need that backup beyond just making a call or sending a text. So I'm crowdsourcing it, guys. You guys tell me, what's the cheapest way you can have a backup phone, period, uh, that's reliable, and the cheapest way that you can have a backup phone that's more of a smartphone type of configuration, and look for the gotchas in there, and anybody doing it already, let me know what you're doing, and we'll share it with the audience. Great question, sir. Awesome question. With that, let's go ahead and take another question. This one, not really a question, more of a story of what happened with some geared-up Leos. Hey, Jack. Uh, Donovan in the uh, Pacific Northwest. Just call in with a comment. Um, I just got pulled over not too long ago, you know, maybe an hour ago. And I was, uh, you know, in farm country. And I got pulled over. It was a really tricky, sneaky little speed trap. But, uh, you know, my fault, whatever. What am I going to do? So they pulled me over, these, these two officers, and they are dressed for war. I mean, this is, this is pasture land. I'm just outside a little little farming town, and they've got 
vests on, they've got ammo all over the place, they've got flashlights, knives, and it's 93 degrees out here. They are sweating bullets, all black, total tactical, uh, ready, you know, they're ready for downtown Fallujah, kicking in doors um, in Afghanistan, and here I am in Yamhill, Oregon. I'm just, uh, and like I said, they're sweating bullets out here. And it's just the epitome, uh, epitomizes what's wrong with the police nowadays. It's just, they're going for this, uh, they're looking for a fight. It's like they're ready for an all-out gunfight war out here in the middle of nowhere. Um, talk about waste of resources. Um, they're not just being prepared. It seems like they're looking for something. So, I mean, maybe that speaks to kind of the psychology of, today's police force, uh, or maybe I'm just pissed because I got a, a ticket, but either way, I thought it was interesting. Thanks, Jack. Uh, before I talk about the problem that I see here, and I do see one, I'm going to give just a little bit of devil's advocacy to law enforcement officers that may be in the situation you talk about. The way out in the middle of nowhere, why are they all geared up like this? Well, it is the place where you might run into some nut job with a deer rifle and a scope. So... That decides that you know you can't trespass within his county or something like that. It, it, it's not likely, but it's possible, and it's a situation where you know getting backup and things like that might be a bit more difficult. So, to a degree, I understand people that are more of the you know what you'd call like Podunk Town area Leo being a bit more prepared than maybe you'd think they need to be. You know, I grew up in a town. Um, a township, I guess, would be the better way to describe it because it was multiple towns and cities and boroughs and stuff, but a place called Cass Township, Pennsylvania, which was, if you weren't in Minersville or Pottsville and you were north of those areas, you were probably in Cass Township. And all these little villages, boroughs, and things like that, and places that had names that weren't even really official, um, it wasn't like being out in the county so much to speak, uh, where you know you have a sheriff or whatever, You had a township, and a township was pretty big. And in that township, we had an officer. His name was Jack Harley. The reason I know him by his first and last name is because everybody did, because he was the only officer for the township. And it's very possible that a guy like him could have ended up in a serious altercation. And where's his backup? You know, He's calling Pottsville or Minersville PD or something like that. They could be miles and miles away. But Officer Harley didn't walk around all kitted up. Of course, it was back in the 80s. So the, the thing about this, and this leads me into the problem, the first problem, because I'll talk a little bit about the, you know, they're just wanting it or waiting for it or keyed up for it. Let, let's put that aside for a second. Let's talk about public perception. I'll, I'll explain to you what Jack Harley was like when I was a teenager causing some trouble, but not really causing some trouble. One day, I was down the bottom of her yard, And a friend had given me some M80s. And uh, I happened to set one off just as he's cruising by. He comes over, he wants the fireworks. I don't have any. Look, we can do this the easy way or the hard way, you know. And I finally like, Officer Harley, I promise you, that was the last one I have. I don't have any more. So he looks at me and goes, you know, if you're bullshitting me, I'm going to find out and there's going to be trouble, right? Absolutely. That, and it was. I was being honest. It's my last one. He goes, okay. Now, I was probably about 14 years old when this happens. Three years later, 17 years old, 
I've got a couple cases of beer in the back of the car. Me and, and four friends decide we're going to get in my car. We're going to go up to this, this fishing hole that I used to fish in. And it's in Cass Township where, where Officer Harley's. This guy seemed like he was everywhere. So there's, 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 there's five of us total. Uh, there was three girls and two guys. And uh, we, we're going to go fishing. We really were going to go fishing. Well, I opened a trunk to get the fishing gear out. And I got two cases of beer in the trunk of the car. And I grab a six-pack out. And as I grab a six-pack out, bright-ass lights come on me. I quickly shut the trunk, and I put the beer in my... my I had this big, heavy leather coat, because it's kind of cold out. I put the leather coat over the beer. It's Harley. He pulls up. Because give me the quarts of beer. So I promise you, I don't have quarts of beer. And same thing. We do this the easy way or the hard way. What are you doing here? We're fishing. You going to show me your fishing poles? Now there was fishing gear in the truck. But there's also still a case and three quarters of beer in the truck. And all I'm holding on me is a six pack. And this guy's always been fair and reasonable with me. Nah, I don't, I don't want to show you my fishing poles. He goes, so you want to give me the beer or not? I said, Just first, please remember, I said I didn't have any quartz. He says, okay. Oh, my coat, and I hand him the six-pack. He goes, now you guys get the hell out of here. I don't want to see you again tonight. Yes, sir, and we left. We went somewhere else, found another place to fish outside of Cass Township, drank a few beers, and fished, and caused no trouble for anybody. He was a peace officer. I look back upon my interactions with him. As a teenager, there wasn't really a hoodlum But I was on that edge troublemaker world. I, I've said before, I think joining the Army and getting out of that small town and that mindset prevented me from having a criminal record. That sooner or later, I would have ended up at least in jail. And I think the other thing that helped me stay out of jail was Officer Harley. Because he was always there. And he was always first concerned with preventing problems rather than arresting somebody. And I wonder how well he would have been received by me and many other young people who I think he was a positive force for if he had been all kitted up like a mall ninja. So what I'm saying is one of the problems with all this militarization of law enforcement officers is public perception. You don't look like somebody that's there to help. You look like somebody that's there to bust somebody's ass. And if you want the community to respect you, trust you and work with you, that's one of the first steps you need to make a change. Now, on the because of the training and stuff like that, indoctrination, are they more disposed now to use violence and force more quickly? And is this kitted up nature a symptom of it? I believe it absolutely is. I believe it absolutely is. And I think, I mean, it's not just governmental organizations. It's NGOs like the Southern Poverty Law Center putting together basically fear training campaigns about things like sovereign citizens and, and stuff like that, going around and giving these workshops to all these local law enforcement officers that are convincing them of the need of this. But I think one of the places you see it is how many freaking dogs get shot anymore? Because here's what I'm going to say about this, and some officers may disagree with me, but I, I think it's pretty evident. The level and threshold for an officer to shoot a dog is much lower than that of an officer to shoot a person. So much so that there are many instances where an officer can shoot a dog, get away with it, but it was never necessary to do. And I think some of these guys want to shoot something so bad when that opportunity comes, they take it. And if you're a Leo and that's you, 
again, this is one of those times I say, there's no shame in it, but you need to turn your badge in and go get a different job. Because you're not of the right mindset to do this. And I'll tell you where this can go. Remember Officer Harley? Over 20 years, this man was a sole law enforcement officer in Cass Township. I found out, I guess this happened about six, seven years ago now, almost 30 years on a job at this point. He goes out, some kind of disturbance, some young thug, local thug that's on a motorcycle, part of the disturbance. He's going to write the guy a ticket and let him go. He knows where this guy lives. He knows where this guy lives. And if the guy takes off, I mean, all he's got to do is go to his house and pick him up. Now he's arrested. Now he's got more problems. While he's going back to the car, the guy jumps on a motorcycle to take off. Jack Harley jumps in his cruiser and rams the guy with his cruiser off the motorcycle and ended up relieved of his duties for doing it. After almost 30 years of being the guy that everybody respected and no, everybody saw this guy as level-headed. He snapped. 30 years of dealing with shit in a small town like that, being the only guy to do it, can do it to you. If you add amped up militarized training to that, it only gets worse. It's a problem. I'm not going to have one of my Jack flipping his shit moments today, okay? There's no need for that with the content that we're talking about today. But you guys in, in, in law enforcement, you guys all need to get a hold of this. And you guys are law enforcement. You are the culture. And if anybody can change the culture to the better, to be more like the old Jack Harley than the Jack Harley at the end of his rope, it's up to you guys to do it. You want our help? You want our respect? You want me to turn back into the guy that will call you again? Because right now I'm not. Unless I know you personally, I'm not talking to you if you're law enforcement. And there's a lesson there, too. You need to get out and get to know people. I know some of you are, and I respect you and I appreciate you for it. The rest of you, that's how you start to think again. Because until you do, everything that you don't like about what's going on is going to get worse on both sides. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack, this is Jason in North Georgia. Uh, I've got a dog question for you. I know you're a dog guy. Uh, we've got a rescue dog. She's about six years old. Uh, she's a mutt, but I think she's got some bulldog and maybe some lab in her, about 100 pounds. Um, she's a really good dog. The problem is she keeps crapping all over my basement. Um, we leave her free in the house during the day. I don't like crating her up. There's a dog door down there, uh, and if I let her out the front door of the house, she will come back in through the dog door but she will not go out the dog door to use the bathroom. Uh, she only does it in the basement. I've done the, you know, cleaned it up, sprayed it with the enzyme cleaner. Um, just not really sure what to do to get her to stop pooping in the basement. I was wondering if you might have some ideas on how to train her not to do that and to go out her dog door uh, to use the bathroom. Thanks for all you do. Look forward to hearing your answer. Bye. Well, I think what we have here is we have two separate issues. We have training that needs to be done to get the dog to use the dog door going out. And that needs to become fun. It needs to become entertaining. It needs to be rewarded where we find some like our doggy's favorite treats. And we have one person on one side of the door, one person on the other. And we put the dog back and forth through the door. 
And every time a dog comes to the door, it gets all loved up and petted on and told what a good girl she is and fed a treat and maybe play with a ball a little bit and back in the door and it happens again and back out the door so that the door becomes like a magical opening that leads to happiness. Because what I think what's happening is she wants in the house bad enough to go through the door, but she has some sort of apprehension from going out of the door. Because here's the other thing that's going on. She's crapping in the basement, not the house. She's trying to hide it. And we've, we, you know, we haven't had any problems with that with Max or Charlie because both of them were dun, 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 crate trained. Okay. And we're going to come back to that in a second because you're going to have to do it to fix this problem. It's the only thing you're going to be able to do to fix this problem. Okay. So we bring Lucy in and Lucy actually house trained really, really quick. We, we crate trained her, but she was an adult dog. Best guess she was about 18 months old and she had been living as a stray. She's such a sweet dog. She had to have people in her life at some time, though. So she probably was in and out of houses and things like that. But occasionally Lucy will come into my office all the way in the back corner and take a big steam and dump. And if my door is closed, which it always is now when I'm not in here because I don't like that, she will manage to finagle her way upstairs. She actually has figured out how to open the door to one of the bedrooms upstairs. You have to turn the doorknob, but not much. It's probably a doorknob we should replace. And she'll go in there and take a dump. And if she does it up there, it's a real problem because you might not know it for a couple days because we don't really go upstairs much. So how do we fix her pooping problem? Crate training. You're going to be gone for long enough that she's probably going to do it? She goes in the crate. Go to bed at night? Goes in the crate. Why? She won't crap in the crate. She'll hold it in in the crate. And it will start to make, see, this is the thing. What you're thinking is, well, if, if creating her is the solution, then I'm going to always be creating her. No. No. You're going to create her when and as necessary to put her back on track. And if that means just a few weeks of it, fine. And this is a problem people have with crate training. You think it's cruel. Dogs are den creatures. They actually feel comfortable like that. We have a crate right now that's in our... Uh, living room for Lucy because the other dogs just don't need it ever anymore. It's the doors open. I don't think I've had her in there for two or three months, but if she gets in trouble for something without being told because she's like in trouble and she knows she did something she wasn't supposed to do. She'll go in there because she feels safe in there. Right. And a lot of times she'll just go in there and sleep with the door open. And if she does something she's not supposed to do, we're not talking crap in here, but just, you know, little bad behavioral things, go to your box. She goes in there. Stay. And she'll stay in there until she's told she can come out. So the box isn't a bad, evil place. It's a place of safety and security. Now, it also is a place of confinement. And that's the reality. It's why I don't like to overuse it. But I will tell you this. If for a few weeks you create that dog when you're not there to supervise her, and you work on the door issue, and she starts learning to control and hold, and whenever you let her out of that crate, the first thing you do is you take her downstairs, if you have to do it on leash, fine, you put her through the door, you give her a, a, a little nummy, and you say, go poo, or whatever it is you're going to say for the purpose of you know, it's time to go do your business, right? And you stay with her until she craps. 
And when she craps, you tell her, good girl, you love her up. Like she did something amazing for taking a dump. And you give her a little another nummy. And then you put her back in the house through the, the, the dog door. And you guide her in and out. After you do that for about three weeks, what's going to happen is anytime you open that box, she's going to run right downstairs and out the door and go outside and take a dump. You won't have to do anything anymore. It will get, become Pavlovian in her response. And what she'll begin to do is, since she's going to have the urge and have to hold it, is the urge will become associated with the door. And then in the future, when she has the urge, she'll run right to the door instead of the basement. Because we already know that she knows she's not supposed to go in the house, or she can go right in front of you. This is Dogs do this. They, for one reason or another, can't get or don't want to get outside of the house. They have to go poop. But they know they're not supposed to, so they try to hide it. And, and that's what's going on here. And that's your way to do it. I know you say you don't like to do it, but there's a lot of things that I do to train my dogs that I don't like doing. I'm, I'm a big fan of electric collars for training. They don't get used often, but imagine how much less I've had to yell at Charlie because I was willing to shock him two or three times, which I didn't want to do. The fact that I know now he's not going to get his face taken off by a chainsaw when I'm working. Or his nose ripped open by a weed eater. Because now those things are associated with pain without actual injury. That I don't have to scream at him about eating you know, my livestock. Because I was willing to do what I didn't want to do for the long-term good of the animal and the relationship. And that's what you need to do here. I can't tell you a better... Now, there might be another way to get it done. I can't tell you a better way. Because what you're going to do, again, is you're going to create that urge to go, and you're going to, by, by doing it, you got to do exactly what I said. Downstairs, very excited, through the door, outside, go poo, here's a treat, good girl, back in the house. And what will happen is anytime that butt starts to pucker, in the dog's mind, out the door. And you're done. And you may have a relapse or two, We have had with Lucy, and it'll take one or two nights or one or two days in the crate, and then back through that, you know, scenario, and she'll be right back in, and she'll get to the point where you won't have to do it anymore. But if you don't do it, it's only going to get worse. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. Tyler in Ohio. Um, my question is what to do with a life establishment fund. Uh, details? I have three kids that we are not using any of the traditional uh, funding for college options, or the 5.9 CSRs, because um, we frankly don't know if our kids will want to do that. So we're we're calling in, I think we heard you say, a life establishment fund. Uh, so I just want to know what you would do with that money, because uh, now we just have it in the savings account, and it's getting like 0.01%, uh, so practically nothing. Uh, so... Looking forward to an answer. Uh, love the show, and thank you so much for all the uh, advice over the years. Well, let's think about it this way, because remember, I'm not a financial advisor. I don't even play one on TV, and I don't give people um, direct financial investing advice, because I'm not in that business. But let's let's examine the issue here from the, the, the macro level first. So most people would save money for college in something like a 529 plan or 529A, I believe. 
And, and that's what we did for my son. And that's why I recommend you don't do it because I saw the mistake that it was. Now, what is a 529 plan? A 529 plan is basically a tax-deferred investment vehicle. It in and of itself isn't anything. It's just a, a bubble around your money. Just the same way your 401k is a bubble around your money, or more accurately, an IRA, because it's self-managed, is a bubble around your money. And, and what that means is you could very well have it in a 529A plan and still have it sitting in basically nothing more than a savings account, making the same crappy return. So how you actually invest it is not really very much affected in any way by the vehicle that it's contained in. The reason that people use vehicles like 529s is due to the fact that when we do a 529, any interest or any gains from sales or dividends or appreciation of stocks is non-taxable. It doesn't create a taxable event. So since we don't pay tax on it, the money stays in there and begins to compound interest, the same way your retirement account does. Now, there's a couple ways we can do this. Uh, I won't get into the specifics, but John Pugliano has talked about it before. You can use Roth IRAs. In fact, you can even, if, if you haven't maxed out your, your, your total Roth, you can even set up a Roth in your name to save money for your kids for college, life establishment, whatever. And it can grow tax-free, and you can manage those investments any way that you want. And you don't have to worry about getting the money out because all the money you put in, you can actually take out with no interest or penalties because you've already paid tax on it if you do it as a Roth. So the only time there would be any penalty for early withdrawal would be the interest, dividends, etc., which means you could, if you if you have room left, could save for your kid's future inside your Roth, keep the interest and dividends for yourself, and give them back the investment. That would be one place you could segment off even a piece of the money. But that really doesn't answer your real question, because your real question is, how do I invest this money and get a better rate of return? So let me give you a little bit of my philosophy on this. The one reason I don't get so antsy about, let's make this a tax-sheltered investment, is I personally think if I'm saving money for my kids' school, life, future, etc., and I've earmarked that money, this is money for Johnny, this is money for Tammy, that money should never be in a state of risk, of any significant risk in the first place. So, you know, I might look at something like laddering treasury bonds, you know, at one and a half, two percent interest right now, depending on the time away from them actually needing the money. Because there's not really a lot out there that's very good right now. The bank accounts, like you said, are paying a tenth of a point or something like that. But in the end, what we're not, we're not really going to make a lot of money because we're not going to, we're not going to go 30, 40 years with this money. We're going what, 12, 13, 14, 15 years. For most, unless we start when we're talking a baby, and then we're talking maybe 18 years. So as you get closer to you know, relying on the funding, the more you want to pull back from it. You can look at dividend-producing stocks that are very stable. One of the stocks we had for my son was ExxonMobil. Over the years, that was very good. You can do that with what's called a DRIP or Dividend Reinvestment Program. Now, I'm not saying to do Exxon. In fact, Exxon is not the stock that it used to be right now, in that sector especially. But those, like you have to find those individual investments. And I guess what I'm saying is, if you had a 529 or some other type of tax-deferred plan, it wouldn't make that issue go away. You'd still have to decide where to invest the money. The only difference would be you wouldn't pay tax on the gains. My view is it's better for you in this instance 
to pay the tax on the gains and make the investments as you see fit with the money. And just go ahead and pay the taxes on it. And that way, when that young person's 18, 20, 24, whatever, you can say, here's $25,000. I'm not going to just give it to you willy-nilly, but it's available to you. Let's figure out how to use it to get your life going the way that you want to. And with one, you might be sitting down and going through schools. And with another one, you might be sitting down and putting together a business plan. And with another one, you might be like, you know what, you're, you've, you've got a great career ahead of you without even going to school or with minimal schooling. Maybe we need to think about how to invest this in real estate. And, and it's better for that money to be 100% available with no strings attached to it with a lower rate of return, in my opinion, and simply paying the taxes on it because it's not money that we're saving from the time we're 20 to the time we're 69 and a half or 59 and a half. It's money that we're saving for the relatively short term that's going to be put to use. And at that point, if there's no direct path to that, then they can always use that to start their long-term retirement savings. And at that point, you can go into it, you know, they can move it over time so that they don't break the rules into something like a Roth IRA for themselves. And so they've made the contributions, they can still pull it back. So another way to look at that is that's the plan. When they're old enough to qualify for their own Roth IRA based on their income, etc., they start moving it in pieces into the Roth IRA, maximum contributions per year. That means they don't really have to save a lot of money early on, so the money that would have gone into their, their retirement, they put that into a plain old savings account as the money kind of moves around. But if they ever decide they want to start a business since the contributions were made over time, well, guess what? Since the contributions were made over time, they are withdrawable again without interest and penalty. But as far as what individual investments, I, I, I can't go there for you. The safest thing right now that has a better rate of return than a savings account is good old government uh, treasury bonds. And you, you know, you're talking about somewhere between 1% and 2%, depending on what and how long. I wouldn't go further than I think about when I look, I looked at the tables yesterday, and I think it was at three years that I went, even though you get a little more for five, I wouldn't tie the money up that long. Things could change. I'm not talking bond funds. I'm talking individual bonds that pay a guaranteed rate of return. Uh, that's the safest thing. Anything above that, you got to talk to your financial advisor and make those decisions for yourself. But every time he says 529 to you or anything like that, I want you to lick your pointer finger and stick it in his ear and say, stop saying those words. I'm looking for the investments, not the vehicle to put them in from you. And if you can't do that for me, I'll find somebody else. Wet Willie is ass, and he'll come up with some other ideas. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and take another one. Hi, Jack. Uh, I was just wondering about uh, CB radios. You know, I just recently got one put in my Jeep, because that's what all of us Jeep people do. And it got me thinking, well, here's a technology that uh, we really have forgotten about. And I know we've done, you've done some shows in the past, and but there's just a few of them. But one thing I've never heard anyone say is to suggest perhaps a, an unofficial TSP channel. You know, we reach 150,000 listeners, you, you were saying, nationwide. Well, why don't we designate a channel, especially with uh, the last thing we have and then this new one that's coming, which looks like a nightmare. Uh, perhaps we could use something like channel 25 full band and 40 upper side band for the single side banders. Um, so if you already have a channel and I missed it, uh, if you could just repeat it, but... Um, 
you know, with 150,000 people, chances are if we start firing these things up, you probably could reach a fellow TSP or near you. All right. Thanks, Jack. Have a good day. I guess my only thing on that is I just don't know how much CBs are really used anymore. I actually got a set. I got two really decent ones, and I had them in, before we lost the blue truck and that wreck. I had one in the blue truck and one in the red truck for just Dorothy and I to talk to each other and you know put you know put old Channel One Nine on, listen to the truckers, and that wasn't even very active unless you were on the highway. Um, you know, I kind of thought I was going to recapture my youth back in the eighties when I put those in back in the you know, days when everybody wanted a car like like uh, Burt Reynolds had, Smokey the Bandit, and all. And it just it's just not there anymore. But I guess at times it's a, it's, a, it's a valuable thing. So. I don't really know. I mean, there's 40 channels, and I think you could pick anything other than 19, and uh, you, you wouldn't have a lot of competition on the on the on the band. Um, but what I'm going to do is I have a link in the show notes to the communications board at the Survival Podcast Forum, and I think anybody that's interested in maybe trying to get that going, go there, start a thread, and start getting people talking about where they are and what kind of gear they use, and see if it picks up because. What, what I think has become kind of the de facto uh, for comms amongst the community is the Zello channel, which works a lot like you know a CB or ham radio net, but it does it over data networks. Now, you bring up a great point. There's no data network when the towers are down and things like that. Um, so it would be a good backup. I just don't know how much, even with as many people as we have listening to the show, you know, what percentage of those are CB radio people and what percent of percentage of them will be in the same place at the same time and have a CB and be available. I just don't know, you know, what's left of that technology at this point. I had a lot of truckers the last time we talked about CB email me and say, just forget about it. Everybody uses cell phones now. And uh, even a lot of the truckers now have their own nets on Zello. So just some thoughts. Uh, it's not dead, but it, it, it's. I, I don't even think that it's to the level of like vinyl records, but it's getting there. Still, people use it. Some people think it's really cool. Some people love it and think it's the best thing ever. But the total number has dwindled and continues to do so. But start up a thread and see if people want to participate. Because this is one of those things like a lot of times I hate being right. And sometimes I really like being wrong. I'd love to be wrong about this. And if it if it takes off, I'll pick up another CB. <laughs> let's, uh, let's take another one. Hey, Jack Austin, the Leo from Central Texas here with a question on water catchment. I currently have an air conditioning unit that has a condensation uh, issue where the condensation is, the outport for the condensation is going into the yard causing a mud issue. Now, like you say, you know, the problem is a solution. How can I turn this problem of a PVC pipe, you know, extending past my air conditioning unit that is leaking into a slight downslope uh, and downgrade into a water catchment uh, and turn the problem into the solution. Any advice you could give would be grateful. Um, and if I can say, from listening to some recent podcasts and what I've seen recently on Facebook, the Utah officer is beyond an oath-breaking piece of shit. So you are hearing it from a Leo. He is. Thank you for everything you do. Um, continue to do, continue to do good shit. So, 
It's one of those things that depends. It sounds like you're dealing with something different than what I have to deal with. It sounds like you got like a one story, like you're coming out low with your discharge. Uh, I actually have two story house, and both of my AC units weep out of the same side of the house as far as their you know, their discharge of their their humidity, and they leak out like as high as the basically the floor joists is in the top floor. So they drop water down in this little alleyway between my garage and my house. What I did is I set up a 100-gallon wheelie-style cart like for garbage cans uh, that was left behind by the last homeowner. I cut a, a, a hole in the lid, and then I affixed hardware cloth to it, and then the water leaks through the hardware cloth into the, the barrel. And I did that so the mosquitoes couldn't get in there and breed. Because I didn't think really keeping fish in there was a good idea. And before I did that, I used a hole saw. I cut a hole in the bottom. I put a bulkhead in the bottom. And I attached a hose bib to it. And then we have this little like garden area right by where we park our, our, our SUV. And the truck on the other side, they park on each side of it. With a little clump of trees and some stuff there. And all we do is, you know, once a week or so, we have a hose attached to it. We drag it out there. We open the the drain cock, and it all flows into there, and it waters everything nice and happy. So we're holding it in a reservoir and then dumping it somewhere. I, I think that's actually the best way to go because instead of this drip, 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 you can direct a significant amount of water, and this could even be done with a timer using a gravity feed or something like that. So if you can, I would take that approach. Then either way... What I think you need to do is look how this water is being discharged, where it's making this puddle, and think micro-earthworks. Simply by putting in, not even really swales, but swale-like features, contour paths, small berms, planting it heavily, mulching it, that water is going to, over time, seep in and move. And I mean, that's, that's what you want to do. You want to basically make a swale-based rain garden type system on a micro scale with lots of mulch and plantings and something that can make use of that much moisture. And, and, and that would be the best advice that I can give you there. If I could actually, if you send me some pictures, I maybe can do some follow-up on this as to exactly how I would get that done. Um, the other option, it would involve electricity and a pump. But another thing you could do, if it's really low, assuming you could dig a relatively deep hole, you could bury some sort of cistern. And, I mean, you could get, like, a poly tank that you would be able to bury and just leave the top uncovered of, like, you know, two, three hundred gallons fairly inexpensively. And they're filling shots. You don't have to dig that deep. Drop a pump down in it and run drip irrigation on a timer off of it and harvest all that moisture. That would be another way to do it. So it all depends on the space you have available, what your goals are, any restrictions your local community, HOA, et cetera, has, uh, and things like that. But those would be the three different ways that I would look at doing it. Again, if you want more advice, give me more details and tell me, like, that one, Jack, that's what I want to do, and here's my situation, and I'll do some follow-up on it. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. My name is Nathan. I live in the Brooksville area here in Florida. Anyway, I just wanted to thank you for all your uh, contribution to the community and everything we're going through and preparedness and everything. We're getting ready to go through this storm, and, you know, because of you, uh, I listened to you for the last eight years. I'm probably the only one in my area that's even prepared enough to weather the storm. I see people panicking and 
buying fuel and everything. And between you and Stephen Harris, I'm good on batteries and good on fuel and everything else. So I just wanted to thank you for everything you're doing and let you know to keep it up. And we're listening. And, you know, good job. Thanks very much. Uh, I don't have a lot to add. I just wanted to play that because it's a practical example of people practicing the things that we teach here and having it pay off. And, you know, I didn't have any direct impacts of uh, Hurricane Harvey here, but we certainly had indirect impacts. I watched for four days as the news went apeshit about the lines for gas and gas stations sold out, people getting in fights over gas, people getting offender benders in the in the parking lot and stuff like that. And I just didn't care. Hell, I went out and burnt gas out of my boat and had, you know, dumped 10 gallons in it and added a little uh, two-cycle engine lube to it and went on about my business. Didn't even care. And it is amazing how much better you feel when anything goes wrong, even a little bit, and you have basic preparedness in place to deal with it. And you just don't care. I, I mean, I'm telling you, my next door... You would have thought somebody was beating kittens to death with puppies because the guy at the end of the road with the little stop-and-rob gas station had the audacity to be selling fuel for $2.84 a gallon during a shortage. And I'm thinking, do you people even remember, like, what was it, eight, nine years ago when gas was, like, over four bucks and everybody thought the world was going to end? Like, this is a minor inconvenience. Even if you have to pay that, at least you had gas. Because most, they never could get through their heads because everybody's so victim minded and us and them minded and dichotomic and, you know, the merchant class versus the worker and shit like that. Like, you can't even get through, they can't even get through their heads. All the big gas stations that didn't raise their price as much didn't have any gas. But we had three local stations who pushed gas up near three bucks a gallon. But if you needed 10 gallons to get through the week until the problem went away, you could. And let's say you went and bought 10 gallons of gas from the evil bastard at the end of the street because you didn't have any saved up. And you had to buy 10 gallons to get through the week. And you had to pay an extra 50 cents a gallon. It's five bucks. Quit crying. Quit crying. And, you know, start buying a gas can a month, filling it up, putting the number of the month on it, and going on with your life. Get yourself an inverter. Attach it to a board. Learn how to run stuff in your house off of your car. Build a battery. Just battery backup. Do just the basic stuff. Consider getting a generator, you know, and, and, and know how to use it before you need it. Store some water. It's all so simple. It's all so simple. 90% of preparedness is the easy stuff. Only 10% of it is the complex part. Thanks for sharing your story with us. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. It's Neil. Uh calling to ask you what you think a reasonable amount of cash on hand is. I uh, don't have unlimited funds, but if you could have a number uh, at your at your uh, home location securely done in a safe of some sort uh, or several, what would that number be? All right. Thank you. Okay. I'm going to say like a dead minimum here of about $300. Um, that will get you through most incidentals and things like that. Remember, I mean, if you're in a situation where you can't use credit cards and stuff like that, your, your, your range is going to be limited probably to a large degree anyway. 
You know, we're not talking about the end of the world as we know it here. We're talking about a Hurricane Harvey and something where all of the ATMs are offline because there's no electricity and all. But oh, there's only so many places to go spend your money. You're not going to be driving around joyriding, burning up the gas that you have anyway. So you don't need a ton of money, but I would say a minimum $300. The goal I set for most people is a thousand bucks. And I'd say this is about a thousand bucks. No more than 300 of that thousand should be in hundred dollar bills. The rest should be in 50s, 20s, 10s, some 1s and 5s as well. 20s are kind of your, your, your go-to uh, on that. Um, the next thing is, if you have $1,000 at home, it should not be in a single location. You know, you can have 100 bucks in a coffee cup up in the cupboard somewhere that's way in the back that no one would look for. You could have a couple hundred bucks maybe in a coffee can that you keep or some place in a, a drawer. And then maybe you have like a little strong box with you know, the other $700 in it uh, hidden somewhere, difficult to find. You know, that type of thing. I don't want to say too much about how to do this because, you know, I am public and I have all these people listening to me and I don't want attracting people to my home. Though I, I think if you come here, you're probably leaving with bloody stubs for arms. But I still just don't want to give away too much about what I would personally do. But that's kind of the way I think about it. You know, the good, good rule of thumb with your cash is break it up into multiple locations. So if something happens to one of them, be it theft, you forgot where it was, the dog finds it and eats it, uh, your house catches on fire, whatever, it's, it's minimized because it's, it's diverse. It's the old saying, you know, would you rather have a hundred dollar bill or five twenties? Well, you'd rather have five twenties. If you lose one, you still have 80 bucks. You'll have 10 dimes and a dollar. If that's all you got, because if you lose one, you still have 90 cents. So break it up a little bit, but I'd say a thousand bucks is, is a good goal for most people. Minimum $300. Um, And if you kind of think about, you should have a thousand dollar emergency fund. It's one of the steps toward eliminating your debt. You know, you get to that thousand dollar emergency fund that Dave Ramsey thinks talks about. If you have a thousand dollar emergency fund, like in a checking, banking account, savings account, whatever that's there for the car breaks down, whatever, and a thousand dollars at home. Basically, what you have then is you have a two thousand dollar go to emergency fund with the flexibility of using a debit card or a check. Additionally, you have the flexibility of using cash. And a thousand bucks will probably get you through most things that could go wrong. I'm not saying a little more is not a bad idea. You know, somewhere in the neighborhood of two thousand to twenty-five hundred would be about the top end. Before I think you need to start thinking about things like you know floor safe, moving some of it to safe deposit boxes and things like that. If you want to hold actual physical cash beyond that amount of money, because it becomes an inherent risk at that point. All right. So with that, let's go ahead uh, and take final question of the day. And again, I can't tell you how much I love this question. Hey, Jack, I was wondering if you could help me figure out what rifle I should get to hunt deer this coming season. Um, I shot my first deer last year and uh, with a borrowed rifle, and now I don't have one for my for myself. And I don't really know a lot about rifles, and I don't know a lot about calibers and um I've just figured I could get some suggestions from you. I think I could probably spend at least a thousand dollars. I don't even know if it, if I would need to spend that much, but just you know, what model rifle, um, model of rifle would I need to get? Uh, what kind of scope? You know, if I need to get a custom stock, or how would it, how would you set up a rifle that you uh, that I could keep for the rest of my life and hunt with in Texas? You know, out of a blind on a farm, 100, 200, 300 yards, uh, white-tailed deer, 
uh, or pigs. Uh, that's generally what I'm looking for. So whatever you suggest, I feel like will probably be great. I'm not going to know the difference necessarily, but, uh, yeah, I really appreciate it. Thanks. Bye. Uh, again, I love this question. It was really fun to basically go shopping here and figure out, like, if this was me and I was at a point in my life where I was getting my first deer rifle, but somehow I knew all the things about guns I knew today and I wanted to buy something brand new from a store, what would I put together? So before I gave you what I give, give you what I come up with, or I came up with, I could probably give a hundred different answers to this question. I could probably do that and still give you a hundred different options, keeping the price under a thousand bucks, doing maybe a little more and a little less than I did because I did not just nail this <clears throat> with a rifle scope rings <clears throat> at a thousand bucks. I have an incredible lineup of options here for uh, yourself or anybody else that wants to put together a great deer rifle and frankly a great North American big game rifle and. I have a rifle, a great scope, two options for that. One's a little more expensive, and it's probably worth a few bucks extra. The rings, an outstanding base. It's a one-piece base that will give you the maximum flexibility and eye relief for comfort with the scope mount. Um, a complete reloading kit. Some additional things for reloading. A set of dies for doing your reloading, including being able to do multiple different types of reloading, neck size only, Uh, factory crimp die, all that stuff. And uh, both of those setups with all of that are under a thousand bucks. And since you mentioned custom stocks, I took a look at Boyd's if you wanted to do something to dress the girl up a little bit for the prom, so to say. And with that, I'm at eleven hundred and eighty bucks on the high end and eleven hundred and sixteen bucks on the low end. So you want to hear how I did it? Because that's come on. Come on, give it to me, guys. That's that's pretty good, isn't it? Well, why do you hear what we got here? So starting out with the rifle, I looked at a bunch of different options for you in kind of the mid-price rifle range, four hundred to eight hundred dollars, and said, you know, what can I? How low can I go and give you the best quality? Well, let's start out with caliber, actually. So I thought about this, and again, like so. To be blunt, you could go to a gun show and pick up an old Savage Model 10 and anything from 243 to 308 to 3006 and anything in the 270 whatever, and throw a $80 Simmons on it with some 4x4 scope mounts and 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 you could go out and kill deer for the rest of your life and never feel like you needed more. But I, I didn't want to give you that as as an answer. So I said first of all, let's think about the caliber. And when I thought about that. I came back to my old favorite, the 306. The 308 and the 306, the differences ballistically are almost just splitting hairs, and the 308 does have a shorter action, which can make the rifle maybe an inch shorter at the most, maybe an ounce less weight. And I, I, I don't hear you asking me for like a mountain rifle or anything like that. So what I'd rather have is maximum flexibility in the cartridge. I want something that if we go down into the south or we're hunting relatively small deer, We threw 150 grain bullets on there, fine. But if we ever draw a moose tag, and you want to, you know, you, you want to go up weight to like 220 grains, which is where the the 308 loses its, you know, relative twinness to the 306. You'd have that. So you basically didn't have just a deer rifle. You had a North American big game rifle, 
And the 3006 has taken every big great game animal in North America and, frankly, most of the big game animals in the world. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it as a first choice to go out and shoot you know, brown bears and grizzly bears, but you're probably not going to do that anything else. You know, I mean, you know, sure, Elmer Keith would tell you you're undergunned for elk. There's an awful lot of dead elk from the 3006. So, and, and then the other side with the 3006, it's about the maximum cartridge that almost anybody can shoot well without having problems from recoil. We can also load it down a little bit. In fact, there's even factory ammo that's loaded down. They call it youth ammo, but in many instances it's plenty good enough and it's good for practicing and becoming, because you're a new shooter, that will make you a better shooter and we can always then side in with our little bit hotter ammo. And when you're shooting, when you're hunting, it won't matter. So that's, that's how I came down on the cartridge. The rifle. Looking at a bunch of options from Savage, Remington, Mossberg, Howell, you name it, all over the place. The place I kept coming back to over and over again and saying, seriously, if I only had a grand to put into this and I wanted to be able to hunt anywhere in North America and I wanted a rifle that I would never feel the need to get rid of and I could do other things with it if I wanted to to make it look a little sharper, snazzier, I kept coming back to one name, Weatherby. Weatherby makes some of the finest rifles in the world. In fact, I would say off the shelf, off the shelf without going to a custom build, the finest rifles probably made in the world, certainly in, in, in America. Absolutely outstanding. The Vanguard Synthetic has a retail price of $650. Bucks. So right there, I've got, I've got it made. I can put a scope on that gun. Uh, some bases, and be, call it done, and, and you've got everything you need, and you can go out and just buy good factory ammunition and never worry again. But I wanted to go even better for you than that. Um, but we'll go with the Vanguard, and let me tell you a little bit about what you're getting with a Vanguard. You're getting a rifle that's almost to the level of quality of, like, the the upper-end uh, Weatherby's, like, the Mark V series but you're paying a hell of a lot less for it. Um, there's obviously certain things that you would give up if you wanted to go to, um, like the Mark V, for you know 25% or even lower of the cost. You are giving up things like, um, you know, you're, you're not going to be able to get like a 240 Weatherby Magnum in it or something. You can get this gun in a 300 Weatherby Magnum uh, or a 300 Win Mag, but since we're going with 306, that's all irrelevant. This rifle is guaranteed to shoot minute of angle, or call it a one-inch group at 100 yards, out of the box. Reviews I've read uh, on it, I have it shooting with factory ammunition, three-quarter MOA at 300 yards. Now, that's not a three-quarter inch group at 300 yards at three, you know, a minute of angle per 100, but three-quarters of an inch consistent groups at 300 yards on a box, out-of-the-box $650 rifle. Well, I want to say, like, Retail, you never pay retail unless you're stupid. And I, I looked at this and said, I bet you can get this this gun for 500 bucks, And that gives me another $150 to work with to put together this whole package. So I went to like Bass Pro and some of the online retailers where they'll at least give you the price. And everybody and their mother is selling the, the rifle for $549. So that's $100. Bucks. I'm like, bullshit. I know I can buy one of these new in box for $500. I took my ass over to Gunbroker and found a seller there selling one. I have a link to it. If you want that one, you can get it. All you need is a, a FFL to, to receive it for you. But if you check around locally in your shops, I guarantee you, you can find one. $500 on the nose, new in box. 
So now you got this rifle for 500 bucks, guaranteed to shoot minute of angle out of the box, an incredible, incredible two-stage trigger on it. You won't need to do anything, but if you do want to lighten the trigger up a bit, you can. An incredibly safe design. These bolts are designed with three vent holes that if you ever have like a ruptured case or anything like that, they're going to blow the gas out of the side instead of into your face. And, you know, perfect weight, perfect balance, 24-inch barrel is going to get the maximum out of the 3006. A little bit longer barrel than, than you know, a lot, of, a lot of these guns are 22 inches, but you're going to get every bit of velocity out of that longer case in the 3006 with it, and I think you'd be happy with it. In fact, when I got done with this, you know, mock build, I, I kind of want to build one for myself now. So that's the rifle. Again, the Weatherby Vanguard Synthetic. It is the synthetic stock. That's going to save you some money. Since you started talking about custom stocks, either now or in the future, why should we put money into a factory stock? It doesn't make any sense. So we'll get to the stocks in a minute. So that's, that's the rifle. The next critical thing is the scope. Now, you can go out and buy a $500 rifle, and you can put a $1,200 scope on it if you want to. Uh, I, I'm not looking for something here that you're going to take to the, 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 the Wimbledon you know, Cup or something like that and shoot 1,000-yard matches with. I'm looking for something that you're going to put the crosshairs on a deer's shoulder, pull the trigger, bang, got dead deer. And in most shots that most people take in modern hunting situations are somewhere between 50 and 250 yards. Three by nine is all the magnification that you need. And in the medium bore center fire world, that three by nine scope is the balance of value and, uh, and quality. So where I went with that was loophole. All American made incredible clarity in their scopes, and I came up with two options for you. Either the VX1 or VX2 in 3x9 with a matte finish. Um, that's going to go perfectly with the matte finish of the Vanguard. So it's going to look match. It's going to look like it belongs together. Not that it's going to shoot better because of that, but if you're like me, you like your stuff to look good. Um, on the VX2, I, got a, I built a spreadsheet to do this. I got so excited about it. A VX2 is going to cost you $232 on Amazon. Other than the rifle, I have links to where you can buy on Amazon every single thing I'm going to give you for this, but you can just get anywhere you want. So the 3x9 VX2 is an incredibly high-quality scope, and at $232, it's a steal. When I was in like high school and looking at really good quality scopes, what was available in the 80s? Anything approaching the quality of a VX2 today back then would have cost you $800, and $800 was a lot more than $800 today. It's gotten to the place where it's easier to make things. You can drop down to the VX1 scope. That's going to go down to $167. Same thing, matte finish, 3x9, 40mm objective lens. The objective lens is the, the, the bigger and the bell down range, and that gives you some field of view and how much light gathering. I stayed away from a 50-millimeter objective lens that a lot of people do because, number one, with this rifle configuration, we'll get to it in a second, it'll let you use medium-height rings, which is going to give you a much better eye alignment with the Monte Carlo stock than going to a high ring with a higher cheek weld and the 50-millimeter lens, you would probably need to go up to it. Also, again, we're not trying to build a sniper rifle here. We're not trying to shoot 1,200 yards in the dark. The Both of these scopes have incredible light-gathering ability and will let you shoot into as much of the evening or morning as you can legally do just about anywhere you go. Okay? Uh, I have the 2-7 uh, the to seven, 
VX2, uh, different, a little bit different one on my 357 Magnum, and I shot a doe last year in very, very low light with that rifle at 100 yards. Uh, probably another two minutes, and I could not have taken the shot. So great live transmission. I believe you have about 92% light transmission with the VX1 and 94 with the VX2. The, the big difference between the two is, number one, the coating of the lenses is better on the VX2. I don't think you could look at them side by side and see the difference, but in certain environmental conditions, you may actually get the advantage of the VX2. The other thing is I think the VX2 is a better long-term play, though both of them are lifetime guaranteed. Uh, the VX1 has a nitrogen-filled uh, it's a nitrogen filled scope. Uh, for anti-fog and stuff like that, where the VX2 is a Argon Krypton-filled scope, and it's probably worth the extra 80-ish bucks. So I'm going to recommend the VX2. I'm going to give you the pricing on both of these as we go through it uh, in total at different stages. But again, you're you're splitting it by you know uh, $65 there, something like that. For rings, I went with just absolute classic uh, Weaver rings, matte finish. Uh, four screw. I like when I have a, a set of rings. I don't like uh, rings that have you know one on each side. I like I have a four. Uh, and most modern rings do, and they are a uh, Pictini style ring, uh, one inch ring, medium height, and that should work with with either of those scopes and this rifle with a great eye alignment, plenty of clearance of the bell of your scope. These are twenty two dollars on Amazon. And there's no need to go to any higher end of ring. These things are battle-tested and proven. Uh, they've been around forever, battle-tested in the deer field, battle-tested in, in the actual battlefield. Weaver makes really good equipment. So now we're looking at a Weatherby rifle uh, with a loophole scope uh, with Weaver rings. We need a base for those rings, though. And there are a lot of rings out there designed for the, uh, the Vanguard rifle. But my problem with them is they're going to attach to the drilled tapped holes on the rifle itself and that's going to sit those rings in that place and I don't know how tall you are what your preferred eye relief is what your uh, eye alignment is and I want to give you maximum uh, capability to move the scope forward and backward to work for your eye relief your cheek weld on that stock and what have you so the base that I found you is actually kind of expensive for bases, but I think it's worth the money for the flexibility it gives you. It's made by Howa, H-O-W-A. It's the 1500 Weatherby Vanguard Long Action Pictini Scope Base. And that's going to give you a lot of flexibility with where those rings go, and that's going to give you maximum ability to move that scope into the position that you want. And again, that, that, that base, along with the medium uh, height rings, is going to put you right where you need to be. And that's your rifle build. That's that's everything. That's your rifle, your scope, your rings, and your base. How did I do with your $1,000 bogey? With the VX2 scope, I'm at $797. And with the um, the VX1 scope, which would be a fine scope, by the way, I'm at only $732. But I'm not done yet. I mean, if you're going to get into you know hunting, shooting deer, you might want to reload. So... My go-to recommendation for people that want to reload is to go with Lee equipment because it's the most affordable and it's incredibly high quality. And Lee has a thing called an anniversary kit. It comes with a copy of Modern Reloading by Richard Lee, which will tell you everything you need to know about the reloading process. It gives you plenty of load data. You'll never need to buy another reloading manual unless you want one. Uh, and it gives you everything you need to start reloading except the die. So that's 131 bucks. 
On top of that, I said, well, if he's going to do reloading and he buys that anniversary kit, he's going to need dies. So what I found for you with, with dies is the uh, ultimate rifle die set for the 3006. And the dies, well, what the hell is a die? A die is the actual tool that does things like you attach it to a press and it will resize the case or crimp, um, crimp the neck of the cartridge around the bullet, seat the bullet, things like that. Now, the reason I go with the ultimate die set is it comes with basically every die that Lee makes for whichever caliber you're doing. The die set's $52.42, and I rounded it off to 53 bucks in my, uh, uh, my spreadsheet. It comes with a full-length resizing die to basically reload to uh, factory dimensions. It comes with a Colette neck-sizing die so that you can neck-size only and actually reload brass that's been fire-formed to your chamber, which generally gives you the most accurate reloads you can get. It also comes with a seating die that's, that, that, in Lee's words, is foolproof. and You can set the exact depth you want, and you're going to have no problem setting bullets at the depth that you want. And a factory crimp die. Now, not everybody does crimps on their reloads. I'm a big believer in them, and I love the Lee factory crimp dies. Uh, I know people who don't use Lee equipment, um, use something like Hordney or something like that, and they still buy a factory crimp die, and they use the other manufacturers for everything else, and they use the Lee factory crimp die because it's, it's that good. It also comes with basically all the other stuff you need. It comes with a shell holder, uh, a kind of a general size powder measure that's like a little dipper that will make, you know, most powders that are suitable for 3006 can be used just with that. Now, it is a single load. Now, the 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 uh, anniversary kit from Lee, it comes with something called the perfect powder measure, and it is an adjustable powder measure. It is, in my opinion, the weakest link in the Lee kit, figuring that you will eventually probably reload other things anyway. Lee has a really slick little dipper kit, and some people think you shouldn't use dippers. I'm not going to get into it. It's a totally safe way to reload. It's a very accurate way to reload. But they have a set of dippers that let you basically load any load that you could ever want to, including with you know certain powders that maybe you don't have. Like this load requires this. You can combine a big one and a little one if you have to to meet a certain load, okay? Or or to try a slightly different charge within a tolerance, and that's ten bucks. So why the hell not get it, okay? So now we've got the Lee Anniversary Reloading Kit. We've got the dies for loading 3006. And we've got the power measure dippers uh, for added flexibility, including things like being able to maybe get the pocket shirt, pocket reloading kit from Lee, or actually building a little bench and taking stuff out and doing reloading in the field while you're shooting at the range. We can do any of that stuff now because we've got everything we need to do that. So where are we at on price with all of this? Um, so now I've got the rifle, the scope, the rings, the base, the reloading kit, the dies, and the dippers. With the VX2 scope, I'm at $992. And with the VX1 scope, I'm at $927. You, you, you really can't do better than that. When I looked at all of the options out there for you, um, this setup, and again, I could answer this 100 ways, and they would all give you a great deer rifle. But a deer rifle out of the box that has a guaranteed MOA, one MOA, if it doesn't shoot one MOA, Weatherby will take it back and replace it. Okay, that's with either, you know, 
uh, premium ammo, pr premium factory ammo or their factory ammo that they make that guarantee with. Um, but I found that if the ammo's worth a damn, all weather bees shoot that minute of angle. That's just how to, with an incredible trigger, with an incredible clarity of the scope and all the reloading equipment. But you mentioned custom stocks. Well, you'll have no trouble finding, you know, custom stock makers to, to make a custom stock for your rifle. I would personally, in your first year, take it out and hunt with it the way that it is and see how you like it. But if you wanted to just kind of upgrade the look of it and make it look a little bit different than everything that everybody else has, then you can get on over to a company called Boyd's Gunstocks. They have a whole selection of stocks that they make that are drop-in stocks for uh, the S2. And I have a link to that as well in the show notes today. Uh, and they have like four or five finishes that you can get either a classic, you know, Monte Carlo cheek piece style stock uh, that is very much like the synthetic one that's on there, except that it's a laminate wood. Uh, they also have a straight-up walnut that you can get. And those are $129. Bucks. Take, take your pick out of them. So if we add a Boyd's Custom Stock to the entire setup that we have here, I'm at $1,121 uh, for the VX1 scope. Uh, of the VX2 scope, and I'm at 10.56 with the VX1 with a, you know, a semi-custom stock. If you look at that and go, I don't want any of those three finishes. I want this finisher. And Boyd's has like a hundred different finishes they'll do stocks in. Well, they have them on the shelf in the most popular ones, which is the ones that everybody else have, by the way. So if you want something unique, uh, for 189 bucks, you can take your pick of the stock style. And any finish they make, and they will make one for you. And with a few extra bucks, you can add some checkering and stuff like that if you want to. But I went with 189 bucks on the on the on the most badass stocks with all the free choice that you could ever have from Boyd's. And with the VX2 scope, I'm at 11 1181, and with the VX1, I'm at 1116. I would challenge anybody to put together a higher quality setup than that. And again, if you don't want to reload, I mean, you can take that, what is 170, 230, 240, 250 bucks right back out if you don't want to reload. And that buys a lot of factory ammo. I just put that there as a bonus for you if you wanted to do it. And I would probably say, like this year, don't even bother with it. Go out and buy yourself some 180 grain uh, federal uh, premium nozzler partitions or something like that. Zero your rifle, get out there and shoot. If you want to do some plinking and get accustomed to your rifle, a little less recoil, pick up some of the Remington Youth Load 3006, 150 grain, shoot it a little bit like that, then zero with the, and go shoot your deer. And then this winter, maybe, as a Christmas present to yourself, pick up the reloading equipment and start playing around with it because now we can load down, we can load up, we can load heavy bullets, etc. And, and we just have a fantastic setup. And man, did I have fun with that. And if, if there's like, you want to give me a build a rifle challenge with dollars and intent and caliber, go for it, guys. I, 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 can't, I mean, I spent 45 minutes just on this question digging through the dip, different options after I selected the Vanguard rifle with all of the other options because it was just that much fun for me. Anyway, I hope it was fun for you guys listening to it. I know some of you guys aren't gun guys going... I don't care if it's Argon, Krypton, and the freaking scope, scope jacks. Get to the rest of the show. All right, so getting to the rest of the show. One of the ways you can help support us 
is by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. You go to tspaz.com and do your shopping on Amazon through there, and you help support the Survival Podcast and the work that you do. Check out our reviews and all the great products that we recommend there and see what, you know, what we've recommended. Today I have a product of the day that I've brought back. Uh, in other ways, I've brought back in the same year twice, and the reason is because they're doing something special. It's the Weber Kettle Grill. Oh, geez, Jack's on about the grills again, and especially the Weber Kettle, and it's the best value on the market, da-da-da-da. It is. It is for a, 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 a basic charcoal grill that will last you, like, if you take care of it, a freaking lifetime. The, nothing beats the Weber Kettle. It's flexibility, the accessories, it's just awesome. So, $150, bucks, and it you know comes in a box, you can assemble it. It's a one-beer assembly job is what I call it. It's really half a beer. So You probably don't even need to read the instructions. It's that easy to assemble. Uh, if you can't assemble it, you probably can't cook on it, so it doesn't matter. Well, what's the special thing going on? Well, again, they're usually $150. Bucks. <clears throat> But I know some of you out there are like me. You're kettle heads. Like, it's a good thing you don't have more space or you'd have more kettle grills. <clears throat> And you like certain features of the old-school kettles. Well, I just saw on Facebook yesterday, because I'm in the uh, the Kettlehead Club on Facebook, that Weber is bringing back the red kettle. Now, this is like the most desirable color for collectors. Now, it's a brand new one, and lots of people are going to buy them, so I'm not saying you're making an investment in your future and your kids are going to go to college on or anything, but the, my understanding is they're bringing it back, they're doing a single run, and it's going away again. They're $200 bucks instead of $150. And you can order it right now, but they're going to be shipping, I think, November 15th. So clearly, Weber's setting this up as a Christmas thing. But all I'm saying is if you got somebody that's like a griller in your life and you're thinking already what to do for Christmas for them, this would be cool. They're going to like it, and they're not even going to mind putting it together. If, they're, if you're where it's cold, they're going to be out on their deck in the snow on Christmas Day putting it together if you give them one of these. And they'll probably be cooking Christmas something dinner on it that evening because it's just cool. I don't know if I need a red one. I like the bronze color myself. That's what I have. But I'm looking at it going, maybe I'll add another one to the stable, and maybe I'll get one of those. But, you know, I'm one of those guys. I'm always checking, like, Craigslist and all, looking for an old kettle that can be restored just because they're cool. Uh, but, yeah, it's 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 just a great grill. And remember, every time you shop on T-Spaz, you'll support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do. That brings us to my YouTuber of the day. I don't really have a YouTuber of the day. I have a playlist for you today. This is some stuff I've talked about in the past, but not for a long time, and I wanted to make you aware of it. Because this is something you can kind of binge watch like you're watching some kind of series on Netflix or whatever, but you don't have to pay for it. Um, there's a group out of the United Kingdom that has done a whole bunch of series on... Old farming methods. The first one I ever saw was called Wartime Farm, and there's a gal named Ruth something that's like the one that's the, the key link between all of them. And then there's a Peter, and like there's like three guys, and like some are in some, and some are in others, and some are in none. Uh, but they've done that before. The first one they ever did that I learned about next was called Tales from the Green Valley, and this is what it was like to live and farm and survive as that kind of person in the 1600s. They also did one called Edwardian Farm, which was from the Edwardian era, uh, and then they did Victorian Farm, which was from the Victorian era, and the most recent one is called Tudor Monastery Farm, which is from the Tudor era, uh, and, and how there was a whole new model for farming that took place in conjunction with monasteries in England. These are fascinating at very high production value. This is like BBC TV stuff. 
and uh, they keep getting taken down from YouTube, but they keep, you know how that works, they keep ending up back up there. So anyway, I found a playlist that has all of the series in it, and that's the one I'm linking to today. So, you know, you got a weekend coming up after tomorrow's show. Uh, some of you guys want to kick back and watch some TV or whatever. You know, most of you guys probably have a way to throw YouTube up on your actual big screen. All this stuff's in HD, fascinating history, life lessons, really cool stuff, so check it out. That brings us to our song of the day. The song of the day is called Cumberland Gap by a guy named Jason Isbell, and the 400 Unit is the name of the group. And uh, when John sent this to me, he said it, it, it kind of that sounds a lot uh, like, it, like it's got a lot of the, the same vein as Billy Joel's Allentown in it. And it certainly has a different sound, but yeah, lyrically, it's very, very similar in a, in a, a huge way. Here's a bit of the lyrics from it. There's an answer here if I look hard enough. There is a reason why I always reach for the harder stuff. It wasn't my daddy's way. He was down in the mines all day. I know he wanted more than mouths to feed and bills to pay. Maybe the Cumberland Gap just swallows you whole. I ain't cut out for war unless I know what I'm fighting for. I think that is... Very indicative of the current time. There's a lot of guys that would fight if they knew what they were fighting for, and I don't think we really know anymore. Uh, and there's nothing here but churches, bars, and grocery stores. When I heard that line, I said, oh, my God, that's where I grew up. That's the coal region of Pennsylvania. That's what's there, churches, bars, and grocery stores. That's it. Ain't much money in the old-time mandolin, so I cash my check and I drink till I'm off my ass again. Maybe the Cumberland Gap just swallows you up whole. Remember when we could see the mountain's peak, the sparkle off the amphibole, like a giant golden eagle's beak. Now they say no one wants the coal. Amphibole is a class of minerals that are really shiny, and I've never found them to be around coal much. I think what he's actually using that word because it rhymes with coal. Um, when you mine coal... People think it's coal is like this dark, black, sooty substance, and it creates a lot of that. But coal itself, especially when it's fractured, is really shiny. And it, it, when the sun hits it, it can almost be like a mirror coming off it in lots of different colors. And it, coal can be ugly, but coal can actually be beautiful. But his whole point is here, obviously, you know, the mines aren't running anymore. And that's where everybody worked. I thought about moving away, but what would my mama say? I'm all she has left. And I'm with her every day. As soon as the sun goes down, I find my way to the Mustang Lounge. And if you don't sit facing the window, you could be in any town. And I think there are a lot of towns in America like this today, where it might not be coal that 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 tore out the soul of the town when it went away. There's all different types of things that have failed, but this is how people live. They live between. Churches, grocery stores, and bars, they find something to do to pay the bills barely, and they just kind of go on about life, and they think back to the way it was for their fathers and grandfathers when there was work, and that's what built the town. I think sometimes what they lose sight of, though, is the, the, their parents always wanted more for them. The work that, in, that was in those towns was good, honest work, and it paid decent, but it never paid great, and it wasn't something they really looked forward to doing. And I think it's time for us to start either rebuilding where we are or moving on one way or another. 
or that's all you're going to have. Churches, bars, and grocery stores. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.